0: Welcome to The Maximus Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kam Sapa. As a clinical psychologist, medical school professor, and CEO, I specialize in helping men be better in mind, body, and masculinity. On this podcast, I interview extraordinary men as a clinician would, hearing their come up stories of how they became the men that they are today, and having them share their secrets of actionable advice on how to look, feel, and perform your best. All right, welcome everyone to Maximus Podcast. I'm really excited to have um, our guest for today, Dr. Jim Hotelling, who is a fellowship-trained urologist specializing in male infertility and men's health. He completed his undergraduate work at Dartmouth, graduating magna cum laude with a double major in history and biophysical chemistry, then went on to Duke for medical school and completed a six-year residency at the University of Washington, where he trained with one of the world's top penile reconstructive surgeons in the world, Dr. Hunter Uh, Wessels, and he has had extensive training in erectile dysfunction, pyrones, and male infertility, and did an additional year of training under Dr. Craig uh, Niederberger at the University of Illinois, Illinois, Chicago, focusing on male infertility and men's health. Uh, He's also currently the highest volume male infertility expert in the Intermountain West and performs uh, numerous penile implant surgeries for the treatment of erectile dysfunction. Um, has over 85 publications, uh, is funded by the NIH to study erectile dysfunction and male infertility, and is regularly uh, invited to speak at conferences all over the United States and the world on male infertility, men's health, and erectile dysfunction. He's been on the faculty of the University of Utah since 2013 and is currently the medical director of the Fertility Integrated Practice under the director of the Men's Health Program and is a co-director in the fellowship for reconstructive urology and men's health. So one of the most impressive backgrounds we've ever had on the show, uh, and uh, is a wonderful medical advisor to uh, Maximus as well. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Hotelling.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of the, the backstory. If you could tell us a little bit about your, your backstory of how you got into, uh, you know, men's health, um, urology, uh, hormone optimization.
1: Yeah, so I um, went to med school at Duke, and everyone at Duke did a year of research. I was deciding; I knew I wanted to do something surgical. I came very close to going into orthopedics, um, and then you know decided that urologist got the most important bone to work on. Um, that's obviously a joke, but in all sincerity, I um, I like soft tissue surgery uh, more than sort of some of the stuff they did in ortho. I had some really good mentors. I went to University of Washington for residency thinking i was going to be a urologic oncologist so a cancer mm-hmm. surgeon um and i got interested in in men's health uh, male infertility hormone manage it, management because it um it's got really good outcomes and it has the potential to make a big difference in like for quality of life for for men um mm-hmm. i also i think another thing that motivated me to be honest i watched i mean as all of us do our parents get older Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, just watching my dad, my dad was a, was a Navy combat pilot, uh, in Vietnam. And that definitely took a toll on him. I Mm -hmm. think, um, you know, just watching him get older, um, and you realize that men don't always do the best job taking care of themselves. Um, you know, my dad was a, my dad's in reasonable shape, but was also a pediatric, you and surgeon. So, you know, kind of go, go, go work all the time. Uh, and just the recognition that men men seek health care at a rate that's fifty to sixty percent lower than women do. And often when they do seek health care, certainly in the range from twenty to fifty five or sixty, most of it's for a urologic complaint mm-hmm. um, because urologic issues, such as the ones we're going to talk about today, disproportionately drive care seeking among men. so that's that's kind of how I, I got into it, and I think the field, um, has tremendous potential. It's honestly way behind where things are on the female side. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's, I think improving the health of men can make a huge difference for the health of sort of them and their families too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We had, um, one of our other advisors, Dr. Eugene Shippen on the show last week, and he was just talking about, um, you know, the, the state of medical education, um, and how unfortunately, uh, there's not a lot of education given to sort of um, men's health and especially like hormone issues. Um, and hopefully with uh, you being involved now um, in, in part of that uh, in terms of your academic duties, uh, hopefully that's changing. And I think there's been a, hopefully more advancements being made as we go forward in the future.
1: Yeah, I think there are. I mean, it's definitely better. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. It's one of the few areas where there's effectively like reverse gender discrimination in in <laughs> medicine if you mm-hmm. if you think about it, i mean a good example of that is you know on the erectile dysfunction side if a woman has to have surgery for breast cancer basically 100 percent of the time insurance will cover the reconstruction mm-hmm. of that if a man has surgery from prostate cancer the majority of the time a private insurance company will not cover you wow. know a lot of the treatment for his erectile dysfunction including surgical treatment you know, leaving him to spend, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 out of pocket to get it treated. Um, it, it's also interesting. I think some of it has to deal with sort of the, the pedagogy and, and the way we've, we've broken down medicine. I mean, you have OBGYN, you know, that's exclusively geared towards taking care of women and they mm-hmm. may end up providing some primary care there. And in men's health, it's kind of this mixture between, you know, primary care, urology, you know, endocrinology, and, and honestly, a lot of unfortunately, I think and and you know Maximus is not like this or I wouldn't be on this podcast, but a lot sure. of companies that have kind of leveraged men's inability to take care of themselves for profit right. uh, to be honest
0: yeah and, and uh, since you brought it up too, um, I'd love to hear uh, um, you know why you decided you, you you obviously can work with a lot of companies and, and have probably worked with some other ones um, but why you decided to get involved with Maximus
1: yeah, I mean, to be honest I. I um I think it was really the holistic approach and uh, a goal of treating not just oh we're gonna bump your testosterone to sky high levels and you're gonna right. feel great and all about just this you know kind of recurring revenue um, without a lot of data because the problem with testosterone is that anyone you put on testosterone will feel better <laughs> uh, right. that doesn't mean everybody should be on testosterone. And I think Maximus did a couple things. Um, I think part of it was like your background coming in, you know, through with psychology training, you know, and thinking about. A holistic way to sort of approach men and and behavior change. I think that's one component. I think another component is like actually offering something that's fertility friendly, where, Mm. you know, a a lot of men have no idea that testosterone has actually been trialed as male birth control, and Mm -hmm. is quite effective, although not effective enough to actually, you know, be used for that purpose. So it was, it was offering that. And then additionally, it was um, kind of a I guess it was sort of the behavior change components of it, if that makes sense, that it was mm-hmm. more than just, oh, we'll give you this pill and you'll magically feel better. Um, and, and honestly, in our practice as urologists, we're so busy, it's, it's, we don't have the time to really do a great job you know, of, of a lot of that. And I think it lends itself really well to some of the you know, infrastructure that you, know, you guys have built.
0: Right. Yeah. And uh, ironically, um, I, I feel like I spent a, a lot of my sort of um, clinical practice working very closely with endocrinologists because I spent a lot of times in the diabetes field uh, working with them. And it was a similar thing. You know, they don't they don't have time to do lifestyle counseling. Um, and so they'd often pass them along to me, the, the treatment noncompliant patients, the, the ones that were really struggling, had double digit A1C levels. Um, and we would do intensive sort of behavioral diabetes management that essentially became the impetus to Amata Health. Uh, a company that I helped start um, that provided online diabetes prevention programs, which is all behavior change in terms of uh, diet, exercise, et cetera, um, and showed that, you know, we we helped about half a million people lose 5 million pounds and cut their uh, risk of type 2 diabetes in half. And so very similarly with uh, Maximus, uh, working uh, now predominantly with urologists like yourself, um, you know, we took, I think the best parts of that Omada program, incorporated the behavior change into Maximus, but also adding obviously the pharmacological approach, um, to, to kind of provide as you, as you mentioned, sort of a holistic point of view. So I, I love the deep dive into, uh, some of these areas, um, cause I think it's going to be really, really interesting for our audience. Um, so one thing that people always ask me about, and I, I love to ask you, cause you're, you're the, the, the real expert here is um, a lot of people have heard about this sort of testosterone epidemic. Uh, some people even joke that like low testosterone is the real pandemic uh, that's sort of going on um, in terms of the, the decline in testosterone levels, um, at least 50 to 65% over the last 50 years. And similarly, a decline in sperm counts uh, and for fertility in the last, uh, similar 50% over the last 50 years. So what the heck is is going on? What is, what is sort of your expert opinion about is like, is this phenomenon real? Uh, and if it is, what is contributing to the decline in testosterone and, uh, and fertility?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's a complicated answer, and I'll try to make it sort of as clear as I can. Um, I do think that some of that data is real. Mm-hmm. I think the, the data isn't perfect, um, but there is a lot of data that indicates that sperm counts have gone down. I don't think it means the end of the human race is mm-hmm. imminent may be imminent for other reasons, but, but I don't think that sperm <laughs> count is, is gonna be, you know, that that's the issue. There is some data, uh, not as robust, but there is some data that testosterone has gone down. And I think a lot of that is environmentally driven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obesity rates have skyrocketed. We know as, you know, obesity goes up, hormone derangements, men don't make as much testosterone, that's one. Two, the diet has changed enormously. You know in in a number of different areas and not for the better more processed foods more foods with you know uh, you know higher levels of estrogen higher things Mm -hmm. that are converted to estrogen Um, three you know our our lifestyle is not nearly as active as it used to be you know men aren't moving around doing as much anymore Mm -hmm. physically Um, you know, and then four, I think, you know, testosterone levels and sperm counts are intimately tied to stress levels. Mm -hmm. And I think stress levels has gone up. And finally, you know, there's something called the testicular dysgenesis, um, syndrome and, and that basically, there's a lot of data to support it, but the gist of it is that, um, in a lot of countries, Denmark's kind of where a lot of it came from, but in a lot of countries as levels have been plasticizer something called phthalates which mm-hmm. are a compound that's put into plastics to actually make the hold the polymers together so to speak mm-hmm. that as those levels and pbas and a number of different synthetic compounds accumulate in our environment and in our body the rates of infertility go up um, the rates of testicular cancer go up and the rates of urologic abnormalities go up as well and obviously the core correlate to that would be you know testosterone you know going down sperm counts going down so i think it is i think that is those things are real now i think the other component of it is that if you look at testosterone the low t campaign it's the most mm-hmm. successful medical marketing campaign in history mm-hmm. i mean it is literally taught at harvard business school as it took testosterone from being a 100 million dollar a year business in 2000 to clearing you know 3 or 4 billion most of it, you know, and we have them here. They're all over the place. There's a lot of clinics that you know, like the clinic here, there's a nurse practitioner in the clinic and the clinic, the medical director of the clinic is a gynecologist in Honolulu, mm. like literally. Mm. Um, you know, not, and it's it's, you know, kind of trying to monetize that. I right. do think though there is data to document. there are there are decreases, but I don't think that necessarily, the average individual has the the sort of full story so to speak
0: totally let's unpack uh because i think you got a lot of good information um there unpack some of the things that you talked about so you mentioned specifically obesity uh you mentioned the, the the poor diets in terms of ultra processed food the increase in um, sedentariness uh, amongst you know the modern population so if you are let's say working with a patient and and you do have the time to do a little bit of lifestyle counseling what are some of the recommendations that you tell your patients in order to ameliorate those areas and at least increase their levels to where um, they should be
1: yeah I try to keep it really simple and I do mm-hmm. actually tell my patients this it's just as you know probably better than i do behavior change is hard and requires yeah. like a lot of right. interventions and trying and failing and trying and failing and then finally being successful but what i'll tell them is try to eat like you know whole foods don't eat a lot of these processed foods i mm-hmm. mean don't eat anything that your grandmother wouldn't recognize as food you know way. you know fruits vegetables meats you know dairy that kind of stuff so that's the first thing I tell them, try to get their their BMI under 25 if they can. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I tell them is exercise, particularly anaerobic exercise, mm-hmm. weightlifting, yep. or if you're going to do cardio stuff, you know, go walk up a steep hill, you know, or high interval intensity training, something that's actually going to build muscle mass mm-hmm. because that's going to release human growth hormone and I mean, the testosterone levels change like second to second. I mean, it's all pulsatile secretion. So I'll tell them that. Then the other thing I say is get off all the, you know, diet soda, energy drinks, you know, all of that. Try to get back to drinking water or something Mm. that resembles it. And then also just cut out, you know, don't use, you know, recreational drugs. And if you do drink, you know, the literature that we have would say try to keep that to less than about four drinks a week is optimal Mm. for. Sperm production, which is probably also roughly, you know, that would correlate to, to testosterone. Those are, those are the big things. And then if they're a fertility patient, I also tell them not to spend any time in hot tubs or saunas. Yeah. Um, the, the testicles are outside the body because they're four degrees centigrade cooler than the rest of the body. So that wet heat heat things up and causes problems with sperm production for sure. Probably causes problems with testosterone production too, although I don't have as good data for that.
0: That's such a great point because I think there's a lot of, um, uh, these sort of health gurus, Rhonda Patrick out there that are heavily promoting sauna and hot tub use. I think they're thinking about it from a, um, longevity or lifespan perspective. And I'm a much Mm. bigger uh, advocate of health span, which is the number of years of quality of life. And so I'm like, if you, Mm -hmm. if you're thinking about your hormones, uh, and your fertility, um, yeah, you, you probably want to at least, um, be mindful about the, the the amount of use of those things mm-hmm. um, so i think those are some really great lifestyle tips for our listeners um, let's also unpack the what you said about you know y- y- in your opinion sort of the primary cause of this is, is environmental um, which i think a lot of other experts agree in terms of uh, how do we get away from these uh, uh phthalates bpa um sort of these uh these xenoestrogens that we're bombarded with because it's like hard to run away from all the plastics
1: yeah it is really hard i mean to be honest it's totally ubiquitous in our environment Mm -hmm. one example is something simple you can do one of the highest sources of bpa you're exposed to is receipt paper Mm. i mean which a lot of people don't realize right so if you're handling the you know the little blue or black printer that's that's super rich in in bpa i think things that you can do um or try to minimize the amount of you know, especially microwaving stuff and in plastic, which I have to admit, you know, I'm guilty of it. I mean, <laughs> we're all probably guilty right. of it at times, you know, what you're, what you're drinking out of, you know, those kind of things. And also just a lot of work exposures. I have a lot of patients who are, you know, for example, I live in Utah. So a lot of patients mm-hmm. are in the oil and gas industry or things like that. I mean, a lot of men are exposed to a number of things, you know, through their work. So I think I think minimizing that and what I tell patients sounds kind of silly, but I'm just like, try to spend as much time as you can outside, Mm. you know, being being outdoors, not indoors. But those are all some simple steps you can take. Um, I think also, depending on where you live, you know, you need to be concerned about things like radon. You know, Mm. it sounds dumb, but get your house tested for radon. Radon is a huge problem in, in Utah. And there's some data linking it to fertility. There's a lot of data linking it to lung cancer, Um, but it's a lot of people just don't think about most of this stuff.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's why I think we do we, we're, we're, this podcast is to educate people about a lot of this stuff. I, I always tell people, I know it sounds very OCD, but like, yeah, don't don't grab all your receipts unless you need them for tax purposes. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, just just say no because unfortunately there are studies that show that just touching them, the absorption through your skin is is almost mm-hmm. in- instant. You can measure serum levels of BPA from mm-hmm. yeah grabbing receipts. The radon one is a new one, um, so I think uh, that's a that's a great tip that I think um, people can look into. Um, And there's a company called Million Marker that actually does test for BPA and uh, Hmm. phthalates. Um, I think it's a urine based test. It's unfortunately, it's a little pricey. Mm -hmm. I think it's like 300 bucks. But if someone, if you really want to go, ironically, it's a lot of folks who are struggling with fertility uh, who use the Mm -hmm. test because they want to just make sure that's not a factor. Um, but there is um, some anecdotal evidence. Um, I have a, an, another medical colleague of mine who, who did like a self experiment in terms of eliminating a lot of these plastics from his lifestyle and did a before and after test and, and, and did find some hormonal improvements. Um, so yeah, I, I always encourage people like, you know this is uh, actually a stainless steel, non-coated, non-line mm-hmm. model or use glass. Um, and some of these even simple changes without being too you know hypochondriacal can, can make a pretty uh, significant impact
1: yeah, for sure. I I think the other big, big thing in terms of behavior change is there's a lot of data showing that a man's fitness and his obesity sort of around the time before he has, his kid has an impact, sets his kids weight for the rest of their life. Mm. Um, and that's a really powerful motivator for behavior change. because if I'm like, yeah, you know, you probably need to lose 30, 40 pounds. It's one thing. But if I say, well, if you lose 30 or 40 pounds, your child for the rest of their life you know, is less likely to be obese, less likely to get diabetes. And it, it has to do with how um, the genes are turned on and off in the sperm. But that is that is passed on to the offspring. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. So it's an epigenetic effect. That's fascinating.
1: It's, yeah. There's, there's some really cool data looking at the epigenetic profile of sperm in men before and after gastric bypass surgery and it's uh-huh. profoundly different. And more importantly, the epigenetic changes that are passed on to their offspring are still there when they're eighteen.
0: Wow.
1: So it's 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 epigenetic changes in glucoregulatory genes. Yeah. Um but it uh yeah, it's it's definitely real and it's um can be a powerful motivator for behavior change.
0: That's fantastic I'm going to use that line <laughs> when I'm working with with folks because um, yeah I, I think when you um, it is a very powerful um, agent of change when you think when you encourage people to transcend beyond their personal health and think to think about their children's health which people are, are much less likely to sacrifice um, that can mm-hmm. that can be very sobering so to speak um, one other thing that I really wanted to ask you about was I think a lot of guys have heard of testosterone they generally understand it's sort of the master male hormone and generally have positive associations with it but i think a lot of folks uh, actually fundamentally misunderstand what it is and what it does for a man so can you actually help um you know explain to our audience um you know like for instance um if someone does does truly have low testosterone what are some of the signs and symptoms that he may see and when you help uh, optimize that in your practice whether it's through the behavior change that we talked about or pharmacological means what are some of the changes that you've sort of seen clinically in terms of how it, it changes how they, you know, uh, look, feel, and function?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have this slide deck that I, you know, talk about, and 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 I show this picture of this guy who's on massive amounts of anabolic steroids, <laughs> and then a, a before picture where it's like this super fat guy sitting on the couch. And I think most men are like, think it's going to take from from A to B. Um, and the the reality is is that a couple things I think you have to understand the effect of testosterone. One, almost all the tissues in your body have testosterone receptors in them. So mm. it's not like it's just your muscle or one thing. I mean, it's bone, muscle, brain, you know, testis pe- penis, pancreas, your gut everywhere, right? Mm. So, so that's one thing you have to think about. Um, the other thing you have to think about is that it's it's not only testosterone, it's also your estradiol, your estrogen levels, and those are, testosterone is converted to estrogen. So you, you know, you kind of have to think about all of that together. The Mm -hmm. symptoms we typically see are erectile dysfunction, low energy, poor sex drive, problems with memory. It's actually a lot more common than you think just problems with, um, you know, energy levels, um, problems, sleeping, irritability, depression, anxiety, um, weight gain, increased obesity, especially Central obesity, or mm-hmm. know, kind of having a gut, for lack right. of a better description, um, and also another common thing I'll see from guys who who are actually often reasonably fit is just I feel like I'm working out like crazy in the gym and I can't you know I can't make any many changes. Right. Um, that's that's often what we see when we correct it. Um, right. You know, we tend to see improved thinking. You know, improved memory. You know erection sexual function improve improve muscle mass very commonly Mm. you know decrease uh obesity better sleep Mm. you know usually one one thing we can see too is to some forms of testosterone can elevate your red blood cell count um so we have to we have to watch out for that um but it it really in appropriately selected men it can make a big you know big difference
0: yeah and, and, you know, you, you, describe a whole, and this is kind of the interesting thing about testosterone. It has such, um, a wide array of effects across the mind and the body. Um, mm-hmm. so when, you know, when you're working with patients, are, are you really trying to narrow the diagnosis? Because obviously there's a lot of things, for instance, that can cause, um, sleep issues or mood issues or et cetera, to, to narrow it down to, oh, this is absolutely caused by your, your low testosterone or, do you take a little bit more of a broader approach and say, "Hey, it's 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 impossible to absolutely pin down the the exact, you yeah. know, contribution of each of these things, but given your profile, you probably benefit from, you know, improving your testosterone and let's see if that improves your mood, sleep, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit empiric to your point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you sort of say, "Well, you have this constellation of things. What we will do is I'll say, "Well, maybe we need to get you to see a primary care doctor." you know, and a cardiologist, we talk about some of the lifestyle stuff. Um, but it is largely multifactorial, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I see lots of patients who have low testosterone, and they just got divorced. And, you know, there, there's all this stuff going on with their job. And then you throw COVID into it, which is, you know, non trivial, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you have all this stuff going on. But what I'll say is let's, let's optimize this part of things, you know, and see how things improve. I think the other patient population that it can really benefit in in patients with some degree of anxiety or depression where it's, um, they'll feel better if they work out, but they don't have enough energy to work out. Um, and, and that can, that can really make a difference because you're kind of, I explain it to patients is you're kind of like, we're kind of trying to get you off the wrong treadmill and onto the right treadmill. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think there's, there's major psychological contributors to this. I mean, it, for an example, like somebody may have severe anxiety and depression, and they deal with that by, you know, overeating and then they can't Mm -hmm. sleep well, you know, they don't want to exercise and then they feel worse. So they, you know, they eat more and, you know, you know, so we really want to try to break that cycle. And, you know get things headed in the right direction and i think testosterone can be one really helpful component of it but i don't think mm-hmm. it can be the only component of sure. it and that's that's where the i think the breakdown often is Is i tell guys it's i'm not going to change your whole life by right. tr- treating this number we don't treat a number we treat an individual
0: right yeah and we you know i think all of our advisors share that opinion we treat symptoms not numbers or we treat patients not numbers um out of all the multifactorial reasons that you you mentioned Is there like a top three that you'd say in terms of what motivates patients to come uh, and and seek you out to to optimize their testosterone?
1: Yeah, probably erectile dysfunction is Mm -hmm. is right up there. You know, poor sex drive or or other you know sexual Mm -hmm. issues, and then three is probably you know changes in in body composition and and low energy. Those are probably the the top three things, and the fourth would probably be. Some of the memory and you know, sort
0: of brain fog, yeah, issues. that that's a, that last one in particular. I think is underappreciated by by folks in terms of the cognitive effects of testosterone. Interestingly, there was a a study done of um, medical students in Turkey uh, that found an association between testosterone and IQ, which is kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, now who knows if it like, now if you actually did it therapeutically, would you change someone's intelligence? Totally unclear, but at least associationally there was an, um, an association. So, um, and you know, I think Dr. Shippen was talking about the association between testosterone and dopamine, um, kind of going hand in hand. And so, so maybe there is some, you know, attentional benefits, uh, to, to that. Um, you mentioned the first two as kind of being erectile dysfunction and, you know, like a libido or sexual drive. I think a lot of people are familiar with obviously if you have ED you can take a PDE five inhibitor a Viagra or Cialis so to speak um, and, and uh, improve you know blood flow and erections. I think people are less maybe familiar with um, you know y- uh, taking a different approach uh, in terms of a more hormonal approach um, to increasing testosterone. To tell us about why that's different than taking an ED drug um, if you're having those kinds of issues.
1: Yeah, um, I mean the ED drug is just a band aid. Right. Mm. I mean, it's not going to really, you're not fixing the underlying vascular pathophysiology or hormonal issues that are driving you to have ED. And ED, truthfully, is multifactorial. Right. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, 50% of the population by age 50 has ED. So it's not, it's wow. not rare. Um, it's a very common issue. And it's why companies like, you know, Roman, Hams, you know, those companies have an amazing business model. Right. Um, but, um, treating the hormones can well first of all there's not a magic pill other than it fixing your hormones if they're abnormal that i give someone to like increase their libido yeah. you know if, if i tell my patients if you figure that out let me know we'll make a lot of money together <laughs> but there isn't some pill you can do that optimizing testosterone can improve the sort of vascular microenvironment of the penis and allow mm. you to get you know better erections on your own and it can you know, the way I describe it to patients is that like men historically are meant to like reproduce and die by reproduce like at age 20 to 25 and then not live that. I mean, evolutionarily, that, that yeah. that's kind of what we're programmed for. So a lot of what we're trying to do with with treating with hormone optimization is get men back into that, you know, range. Mm-hmm. So um, the difference with the hormones is that it, it is actually addressing some of the underlying, you know, issues and not yeah. just. A band aid, especially when it's done as part of a sort of more of a comprehensive lifestyle change program. Because if you, you know, if we take your testosterone from 300 to 700 and you're still eating three bags of Doritos every night after right. work and drinking a six pack of beer, it's it's probably not going to fix the problem.
0: Sure. Yeah. So it's, it's often very counterproductive. I love your point, though, about ED drugs often being band aids, right? And, it, and, you know, uh, addressing the hormones is almost like addressing the root cause of things. Um, so I, I think that's important for, for men to, to realize is like, you know, and, and I always say this too in the psych- psychology practice, right? Like you, you can obviously treat symptoms, right? In terms of depression and anxiety, but we should figure out what's causing that in the first place and address uh, those root causes Cause that's going to be lo- like lasting change. Um, that's going to be more beneficial to people. Um, let's talk about that third point as well. You said that the, the third reason main motivator that people come in is um, due to the body composition uh, and also the energy. Um, and and you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you know, guys unfortunately, unfortunately, due to anabolic steroids have become uh, completely unrealistic expectations, right? Like th- those guys are not only like uh, genetically superior. I actually watched this video of Arnold Schwarzenegger um, at eighteen years old when he was in the military, doing like tons of cardio. He put on twenty five pounds of muscle while not on steroids while he was eighteen years old. Like this guy is, was obviously genetically <laughs> very, very inclined to be great and then did okay. a lot of steroids on top of that. Um, yeah. So, you know, optimizing your testosterone is not going to make you into Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, but what is realistic in terms of the body compositions that you you see when people improve their um, their testosterone levels and, and also like the, the changes in energy? How is that different than just, you know, caffeine that people take?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think to understand that, you have to understand that testosterone is like a circadian rhythm. So it... Mm. Peaks at four in the morning, you know, and then goes down afterwards. And, you know, if you give someone exogenous testosterone like a shot, you're shutting down their body's ability to make its own testosterone and giving it back to them. So you're sort of short circuiting that entire Mm -hmm. rhythm. Whereas if you give, you know, and clomiphene or Clomid or a lot of these other drugs, you're actually augmenting their, their brain's ability to, I tell patients, it's like, we're hitting the gas pedal to tell your testicles to make more testosterone. In terms of what you can see, um, you can, most men after age 40 lose about 1% of muscle mass a year if they're not exercising or doing anything. So what I often will see in patients is maybe a, it's hard to quantify it, and I think it depends a lot on like where patients are starting, Mm -hmm. but probably like maybe a three to three to 5% improvement in body fat over Mm -hmm. 12 to 18 months if they're kind of compliant with other stuff with a concurrent increase in muscle mass. Um, but that's assuming that they're actually, you know, making some of the other changes and and positive stuff. Yeah. It's not realistic to assume that you just take this pill. And I mean, if you know anything about, you know, exercise physiology, like you have to put the stress on your body Mm -hmm. to actually get it to, recover. And testosterone will help you recover better um, and increase your capacity for work, but you still
0: have to do the work. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not a a magic pill. And I think, I've I've, I've in fact seen the studies on, um, uh, I think it was TRT, um, and they had them uh, placebo group compared to TRT compared to TRT plus exercise um, and the TRT group actually did gain muscle sitting on, on the couch and not doing anything yeah. but nowhere yeah. near as much as when they combine it with exercise it really seems to have a synergistic effect and, and that obviously was kind of underlined the philosophy of our program was you know with the, the group coaching that we do we certainly encourage people to exercise do strength training because um, it'll make sure that they're uh, you know utilizing that newfound um, you know optimal hormone milieu to yeah, increase their, their, improve their body composition and their, their lean body mass in particular. Um, wh- what about the energy side of the the, the equation? Uh, wh- what do you see in terms of the energy improvements and, and how is that different than caffeine?
1: Yeah, we see that patients sleep better is one mm. of the most common things we hear. I mean, it's, and the problem with caffeine is you're awake when you take it, but then it can right. cause problems sleeping. So I think patients usually have Better sleeping, sleep through the night better, especially in some of my more anxious patients. One of the symptoms of that can be they're getting up really early because yep. their circadian rhythms are altered. Um, that that improves. and they have a lot of the patients say they have a much better, like higher and more steady energy level. It's not mm-hmm. you know up and down um, like it might be with caffeine.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point, and I run into this all the time because I do a lot of um, you know uh, sleep work with my. Uh, patients and people totally underappreciate how much, especially afternoon, late afternoon caffeine can mess with their sleep. Um, people metabolize caffeine very differently. I'm actually a slow metabolizer myself. So even though most people think, oh, um, it has a, a five-hour half-life, which is why that uh, product is called Five Hour Energy, mm-hmm. um, that, oh, it's out of your system in five hours. And you're like, oh, not quite. First of all, a half-life means 50% <laughs> out of your system, not completely out of your system. And if you're a slow metabolizer, which you can do like a 23 mean test or if you're just really sensitive to it, you're probably a slow metabolizer. Um, a lot of folks need you know, eight, 10 hours uh, for it to really not affect their sleep quality. Um, mm. And so you know, uh, it, it, obviously caffeine use is not, not bad for you, but if you're using it in a way that disrupts your sleep, clearly it is. And so um, I think people um, uh, underappreciate that there are alternative means to improving energy. Um, and obviously this hormonal approach is a different one. Um, you also mentioned, uh, uh, which is a perfect um, you know preview to what I wanted to get into, the difference between TRT and SERMs or Selective Estrogen Receptor Modulators like Um, and I think the general public like just doesn't is not very aware uh, of of what you can do to improve your testosterone. So we talked about the health behavior side of things. So let's talk a little bit about the pharmacological side of things um, and how you approach testosterone optimization and and for instance, when do you put someone on TRT versus um, putting them on a CERM?
1: yeah it's um, a great question um, my in very broad brush strokes I don't put anyone on TRT who's planning on having kids in the future mm. you know which which that's a lot of a lot of people right. um, I um, a lot of the patients I put on TRT are some of my much older patients in their 60s 70s a lot of those guys have had, prostate cancer, you know, other issues, or to be honest, a lot of them come to me when, you know, been on testosterone for a long, long time. I tend to, in younger patients, let's just arbitrarily say under 50, you know, almost all the time start with, you know, and you know, or we'll use Mm -hmm. Clomid, which is a sort of a less selective version of that um, routinely because it doesn't have the side effects of testicular atrophy and it doesn't have a rebound period. I mean, that's one of the biggest things, right? A lot of men don't realize that they go on testosterone for three months. They may feel great, but when they come off of it, if they don't go on something like Clomid to help jumpstart right. their system again, or right? in Clomiphene, they're going to feel terrible because their mm. levels will tank. A, a good analogy is, if you view that whole system as a thermostat, mm. um, you know, a lot of these SERMs are basically blocking the receptors that do the negative feedback at the, the level of the thermostat. So essentially they're, turning the thermostat up to increase Mm -hmm. the temperature indirectly, but the gist of it is the same. Whereas, you know, if you go on testosterone, it's like putting, it's like the thermostat's still on, but you're taping a big, you know, space heater over the thermostat. So Mm -hmm. the whole system shuts down. It's like, oh, it's really hot in here. I don't need to do anything anymore. So it's it's a very different mechanism. And certainly any patient who's concerned about fertility should never be on testosterone. And we Mm -hmm. see patients all the time. have been on testosterone for years, by one of these shady clinics and nobody's ever even mentioned to him that, you know, they were on male birth control.
0: Yeah. I think, I think you, you were the one who told me that, um, like something like 25% of, uh, mm-hmm. these folks that you, you ran across, like didn't even know that infertility mm-hmm. is a side effect of uh TRT.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think the other advantage to, and we, we pub, I've, I don't know, I've published probably seven or eight papers on, On clomiphene over the years, and one of the advantages of it is that it's it doesn't get rid of kind of it. It augments some of that Mm -hmm. you know natural rhythm that you have. It doesn't totally you know get rid of it, and it also has the side benefit of not hurting but improving sperm production.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Um, and that's the in fact, its original FDA approval is for fertility Mm -hmm. in women. Often, often used very, very, uh, very commonly off label in men. Um, Yeah, and I I think that's an important message that we should share with our audience. Literally, there's actually a paper published in 2019. And the title of it is testosterone is a contraceptive and should not be used in men who desire fertility. That's literally the title of the paper. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think they they also wanted to just make that crystal clear for folks. Um, So some people, um, uh, you know, whether rightly or wrongly play this devil's advocate approach, and they're like, well, yeah, it causes infertility, but uh, you can just take H- HCG and it'll be totally fine. Or w- when you're ready to have kids, you can re-stimulate your system. It, it, what's your actual uh, you know, view on that? Or, or does is the testicular atrophy or the infertility cause, um, depending on how long you've used it, some issues where it's, it's not quite the same and people should be cautious?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think those people... I think that's kind of an idiotic way to think about it personally. I mean, if you think about the way things work, you, know, you have hypothalamus, pituitary, then you have LH, which drives testosterone production, and you have FSH, which drives sperm production. Mm-hmm. So what a lot of these clinics will do is either keep people on testosterone or stop the testosterone and add HCG. So HCG will augment the LH, so it will drive up their testosterone production. It will not drive up their FSH, right, mm-hmm. which is their, their mm-hmm. sperm production, first of all. Something like n will. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's driving up both those hormones due to, you know, blocking the estrogen receptors, you know, the level of pituitary. So I think it's crazy to tell patients mm. like that. On average, if you look at patients who take testosterone after 18 months, 90% of them will have recovered sort of normal sperm production. But mm. in a, in a, most of the patients we see in the fertility world have delayed childbearing. You know so the woman mm-hmm. might be 37 38 39 and right the fertility differences between a 39 year old and a 41 year old are quite significant mm. um so you know you don't want to take that time and if we like if someone comes off testosterone we can put them back on you know clomid and clomiphene and usually get sperm to recover in somewhere between three and nine months so we can decrease mm-hmm. that time but I think it, that's absolutely crazy to do that. I don't think it makes any sense, especially when there's not you know, amazing data that that testosterone is going to make you feel that That if, if your testosterone is 200 and you get it to 600 with testosterone, that you're going to feel different than if you get it to 600 with clomiphene.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And it's interesting in your practice, you mentioned almost as a default uh, for guys under 50, uh, you prefer not to take the TRT approach unless it's absolutely um, you know, indicated, or if they, they still want to maintain their fertility. Um, so, so, um, I'm, I'm curious your point of view, why is, uh, why are SERMs um, given that they maintain testicular size? In fact, there's a paper that, the a poster presentation at a, a urology conference that shows that increases, uh, testicular volume, uh, at higher, higher dosages, uh, and can maintain or even increase fertility as well, uh, due to the FSH effect that you mentioned. Um, why why are they not as commonly used versus TRT, or at least the general public, like either doesn't know about it or has a or maybe an unfairly negative view of 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 CIRMs for testosterone optimization?
1: Yeah, I think it's just well, it's two things. One, testosterone, you know, clomiphene, as you mentioned before, is not it's an off label use to use it in mm. men. It's used all the time. I have thousands of patients who have put on it, done well. It's very well tolerated. But, um, you know, our testosterone obviously is FDA-approved to use in men. Also, there's, like, a lot of new formulations of testosterone that have come out in Mm -hmm. the last five years. Um, And those are heavily marketed by pharmaceutical companies. And there is kind of a a halo effect there when, you know, people are seeing testosterone and and hearing about it. Um, Whereas, you know, there's not a pharmaceutical company, you know, out marketing because they're because it's a generic drug and they they can't make any money on it right um you know it's it's like a dollar a pill or less so um that's what i think the main the main reason you know is Mm -hmm. that there just isn't enough data there's also some old urology literature which a lot of in in the more in the fertility world that you know if you were on clomid that like a small percentage of patients it would drop their sperm counts uh, and we just don't really see that, and that hasn't really been borne out in my publications or others. but but that, I think, is a big reason. I just think it's a it's a marketing mm-hmm. It's a marketing thing.
0: Yeah, it's been fascinating. like we we've we started um you know advertising our services and and I think that's been the interesting feedback even on the Facebook ads. People are like, oh, TRT is the only thing that works. Oh, Cloman doesn't work. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me, like why people have, have um, come to that point of view, because when I talk to actual clinicians or scientists, they don't share that view at all. But mm-hmm. to your point, people are highly influenced by, by marketing. Um, and so hopefully we can market it in, uh, and help, you know, dispel that myth, but, but in an evidence-based way. Um, so on that note, um, can you educate our audience, um, actually about in um, and how it's different from Clomaphene or, or brand name, uh, Clomid
1: yeah it's basically um drug clomiphene is two isomers Mm -hmm. you know and there's one isomer that's more effective and thought to be responsible for most of the good effects and there's the other isomer is thought to be you know responsible for some of the the negative side effects and you know and clomiphene is essentially the isomer that's more potent and more positive is is a way to remember it so it's a Clomid has both isomers, whereas this is basically, and it's the same, the way I describe it to patients, it's the same drug. It's just that if you looked at it, a version of this one and the other one in the mirror, you couldn't actually, you know, Mm -hmm. fully superimpose them because something's just rotated slightly, but the chemical compound is actually the same.
0: Right. Yeah. And and I think this is, you know, unless you've taken chemistry, uh, hard for uh, most people to understand, but uh, Clomid or Clomiphene is 62% and 38% zuclomiphene. And so two thirds of it, and then so it's almost like a dosage equivalent, like the 6.25 milligram dosage, which which we start most of our patients on, is about equivalent to 10 milligrams of Clomid. But the interesting thing is, it seems to have very different effects over time because these two isomers have totally different half-lives. The half-life of zuclomiphene, the kind of the the more estrogenic agonist isomer that has responsible for the side effects, actually builds up in the system uh, over time due to its a very long half-life, while enclomophene is a very short half-life and it doesn't accumulate. So um, I think that's why a lot of folks, when they, they 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 feel um often really good when they first start taking clomid and that tends to change a little bit over time as the zoclomiphene isomer essentially builds up in the system. And even though it's theoretically theoretically 38% of the the drug, in terms of the serum saturation levels over the course of many months, it really becomes uh, you know, ninety percent of of what's in your system versus enclomiphene stays kind of low, and so I, I think it's actually a very smart pharmacological approach that um, you know repros who originally uh, uh, purified clomid was mm. to uh, was trying to make sure that it's the enclomiphene which is mostly responsible for the effects um, is the is the isomer that's actually in your system and building up over time. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, uh, in your experience, when when people take um, whether it's in enclomiphene or clomid, um, w- what are some of the benefits um, that they see um, in terms of uh, uh, that? And um, what are uh, side common side effects? How how common are they uh, versus how yeah. rare are they?
1: Yeah. So we published on this, and this is just with clomid. Is that ninety six percent of our patients like didn't have negative side effects? That's great. Um, yeah, actually it was 94, but but pretty close. So 94% didn't, 6% did. When they did have negative side effects, it was sometimes um, irritability, fluid retention. Um, one in 5,000 patients from Clomid can get some vision changes that mm-hmm. are reversible if you stop the drug. Um, those were the most common ones. We classically worry about elevated red blood cell counts with Mm testosterone. We found that Clomid has a much safer profile for that. Mm. We found almost nobody, you know, who actually had that. Um, In terms of the positive effects, it's very similar to testosterone, you know, better energy, better sex drive, better muscle mass, you know, and I will tell you anecdotally we do see, because we use, we use Clomiphene um, or Clomid, Um, you know, we do see that anecdotally some of those effects are better, the positive effects are better initially. And then, yeah. you know, they don't always stay there, which, you know, maybe we should be switching to, you know, and Um, But yeah, the effects are very, very similar to testosterone with the added effect that like it improves fertility. So I also put lots right. of guys on Clomid who have low testosterone, have no symptoms of low testosterone, but have fertility issues and really poor sperm. And we see a, a, a significant improvement in the vast majority of men we do that for.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important for guys too. You know, a lot of guys are like, "Well, I'm not trying to get anyone pregnant," uh, you know, in, in the near future. And and even if that's the case, uh, I, I do think you know, um, it, it creeps up on you. Life changes, and you know, you may in the next couple years uh, change your mind, meet someone that you do want to do that with. Because I think the same ironically thing happens with women. They're often, um, you know, not thinking about that until often it's too late, and they 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 run into advanced maternal age issues with their own fertility. Um, So I think it's an underappreciated thing and and mentioned sort of take their fertility, um, you know, for granted. Um, But it's really great to hear that, you know, like, you know, your publication on Clomid, relatively, um, you know, rare uh, side effects. Um, Yeah, because I think people commonly ask us like, um, you know, is there a risk with uh, the stuff that we use in terms of um, uh, blood clots, um, uh, prostate cancer, um, and also is it going to exacerbate my hair loss? Uh, so when patients ask you those questions, uh, you know, what's your reply?
1: Yeah. So we looked at a big database, like of 160 million people, um, looking at, uh, not that many people in, in a commercially insured database are on mm-hmm. Clomid, but we looked right. at, you know, Clomid and testosterone and we didn't find a significantly higher rate of, you know, blood clots. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is really what you worry about when you're worried about like elevated red blood cell count, what you're really worried about is like, you know, blood clots and that kind right. of stuff. And we actually, with Colomid, it's pretty rare for us to, the, the, the data basically breaks out of the hematocrit gets above 54. You are mm-hmm. at somewhat of an elevated risk of stroke and we're at altitude in Utah. So we're all right. have higher crits, you know, the average crit here is mm-hmm. in the forties versus like, you know, in the thirties and like at sea level. So, um, you know, we monitor that. So from what we've seen, that's, you know, that's, that appears to be very, very safe in mm-hmm. terms of the whole risk of prostate cancer. Most of us don't really believe that anymore. There's even mm-hmm. some data that men with higher testosterone levels have a lower risk of prostate cancer. Um, and, and we used to sort of say, Oh, if you've had prostate cancer, we can never put you on testosterone. We do that all the time now, mm-hmm. um, in, in patients who have had certain sur- definitive surgery for prostate cancer and, you know, have normal PSA testing, mm-hmm. I don't even test PSA levels on men, you know, under 50, even mm-hmm. if they're on Clomid anymore. So that, th- those, those things I think are pretty rare. I think it's yeah. generally very, very safe.
0: Is, are there any contraindications to, to using Clomiphene or, or Clomiphene? Um, so, like for instance, uh, history of prostate cancer is, it would, would not necessarily be uh, uh, exclusion criteria?
1: No, not if the prostate cancer is like treated. And what we use is sort of after you've treated, if you've taken the prostate out, you can follow the PSA, right? The PSA should be undetectable if the prostate cancer isn't there. Um, So here we use, if they've had, you know, three negative PSA tests, we'll put a lot of those guys on testosterone or or clomid Mm. and not worry about it. Yeah.
0: Makes sense. Are there any other, um, you know, like common exclusion criteria or or, or how do we know it's Not not right for them?
1: Uh, I think in patients, we found in patients with a BMI over thirty that if you start them on um, mm-hmm. clomiphene, that it's often helpful to add another drug to balance their estrogen level because mm-hmm. their their estrogen level will go up significantly.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, obviously, with a patients with some kind of hereditary hereditary clotting disorder, which there's not a lot of patients with that, but. If they're if they do have that, then I'll often talk to their hematologist, the doctor who's managing that, about whether they think that this drug is going to increase the risk. Uh, a lot of those patients are anticoagulated; they're on a drug like Coumadin anyway, so you, you don't you know you don't worry about it because anticoagulation is going to be higher. There aren't a lot of um, a lot of contraindications. The 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 only really absolute contraindication is if a patient's had some kind of pituitary surgery where they don't they don't have enough of an intact pituitary to mount any response to Clomid or there's certain congenital things you can be born mm-hmm. with where you're missing part of your pituitary and you don't have a sense of smell and some other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have that, clomin won't do any good because you, you don't have, it, it's acting in the pituitary and you just don't have, you know, what you need to make the, make the, uh,
0: gonadotropins. Makes sense. So it's less—it's less of a safety thing. It's more of an efficacy thing. It's just not going to work. Yeah. you don't have an intact uh, uh, pituitary, yeah. so to speak. Um, yeah. Very, very fascinating. And then, what about the hair loss question? People, because that's the, probably the most common question we get. They're like, "Oh, yeah. if I increase my testosterone, all my hair is going to fall out."
1: Well, hair loss is a common problem among, <laughs> uh, among men, um, and even some women. Um, it can be an issue. We don't see it all the time, anecdotally. I've never really done a huge study on it, and maybe I should, I haven't, in my experience, had many patients who end up coming off of clomiphene because they're like, all my hair is falling out. Mm. Um, I think of if you look at clomiphene versus testosterone, I think testosterone is going to have a higher risk of that than right. um, clomiphene. And I would I don't know this, but I would suspect that if you studied it, and clomiphene would probably be safer than clomid in terms of that. I mean, it's always possible. And right. the, the problem we run into is some people like also put patients on propecia or a low dose of finasteride mm-hmm. to protect the hair follicles, but that that medicine is not is not good for fertility. So mm-hmm. in in my patient population, if they're really worried about it, I'll just say, well, like, what's more important to you, like your hair or having a baby? Right, <laughs> you know. <right>. You...
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, and yeah. the the studies that have actually looked at um, TRT versus enclomiphine found that. Um, TRT significantly increases DHT and so the, the DHT to T ratio significantly increases. And interestingly within clomiphene, the DHT to T ratio does not increase. Um, so it doesn't seem to increase DHT as much where if you, if you even believe in the first place that DHT is the major contributor to yeah. the exacerbation of androgenic alopecia, um, it seems to be a much more hair safe or hair friendly. Um, Although it's even questionable if DHT is the major, major driver of it, um, you know, in the first place, it's probably multifactorial um, in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, it should at least uh, in theory be, be a lot um, you know, safer, safer on hair. Um, oh, one other question I did want to ask you is, um, I do run across a lot of people when they, when they hear about what we're doing at Maximus, they, they, they start mentioning anecdotally that they're taking some T boosting or testosterone support supplement uh with all kinds of herbs, minerals, vitamins. Uh, uh I'm sure you run across some folks uh in your practice who who ask you the same thing. Uh what do you typically tell them um about these kinds of things?
1: They're all crap. There's <laughs> no there's no data to support efficacy. There's even some data that taking DHEA can actually hurt your fertility. Right. Um you know I'll use the analogy of you know, they did the same we did a study for looking at um looking at uh, like online supplements to help erectile function and the only ones that were affected actually had Viagra in them Hilarious. Um, like illegally so I yeah yeah I don't I have not seen and, and if you have please let me know about it but I have not seen any convincing data that any of these supplements can
0: really boost testosterone yeah I haven't either and I I've actually reviewed the, the literature on them there's some some of them that show a statistically significant effect but it's not a clinically meaningful improvement. It's like a 14.7% improvement with Ashgawanda, which is meaningless in terms of how people are gonna feel versus you know, 100% improvement, which you see with the, the pharmacological measures. Um, so yeah, I think it's an important uh, message to share with our audience as well. Um, awesome, we're running up on time, uh, but uh, Dr. Hotelling, this has been an incredibly uh, educational tour de force. Um, you have such a wealth of experience, both clinically and also in terms of the, the many, many papers uh, that you've published. So I, I think, um, you know, the people who are listening benefit a lot from your, your sharing of your clinical and scientific wisdom. Uh, so thank you so much for, for uh, joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.